Powered by Righteous Media. What's up, guys? Welcome to episode nine of the Firefighters Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Serra. This week, as always, my daughter Frankie will bring us another episode of Frankie's Firehouse Feasts. And America will prepare for its biggest feast of the year, Thanksgiving, which is also my favorite holiday. But I'm going to cut right to it. This week's roll call and this entire episode is dedicated to the 265 lives that were lost on November 12, 2001 when American Airlines Flight 587 crashed in Queens, New York. I was working that day. Uh, I responded that day. So allow me to bring you a conversation that I had with my friend Tina, uh, who specializes in dealing with first responders and service members who are affected by traumatic events. So here it is, Tina Costantino. We're proud to have a new sponsor for the show, Rocky Boots. Since 1932, Rocky Boots has had a proud legacy building boots for the men and women who serve and protect our country. And in January, Rocky is introducing their fire boots. As with all Rocky Boots, these are high quality, comfortable, and built to last. Plus, these boots are NFPA certified. Located in an American small town, Rocky has volunteer firefighters in their company, and their focus is on footwear that's innovative and durable. Rocky is currently looking for firefighters to wear test their boots. If you're interested, reach out through any of Rocky Boots' social media channels, Facebook and Twitter, at Rocky Gear. And be sure to check out the great deals at RockyBoots.com. Rocky Boots, rugged innovation since 1932. With me this week is my friend Tita Constantino, who is a CISM specialist, and she's going to explain to us what that is. Uh, and this week, we're going to discuss my response to the plane crash uh, in Queens, which occurred 20 years ago last Friday. Um, and Tina's just going to walk us through that. And uh, we're going to figure out how to deal with with uh, the effects. Welcome, Tina. Thank you, Rob. I appreciate and I'm honored that you invited me to participate. Um, I do do critical incident stress management, which is CISM. And... Our training is covered through a federal grant, and it is funneled through the Massachusetts State Fire Academy. Um, But it's for first responders and military and their families. So um, it's a peer support program, and I am a family member of military and first responders. My dad was a firefighter. So this um, training is ongoing, yearly training that goes on multiple times throughout the year. And then every other year, we have a biannual conference in Baltimore, where from all over the world meet, and we do team building and exercises and training together um, for larger catastrophic events. Um, uh, one of the most important components of the ISM is that it is 100% confidential, and not a single one of us gets paid to do so. We are all volunteers, um, so it doesn't cost us out of pocket for our training, but we do it out of the altruism of our hearts because we really care about our firefighter, police officer, and military family. And that's great. And uh, that's something we like to talk about on the show is volunteerism, especially 
with firefighters, since I believe more than two thirds of our nation's firefighters are volunteers. Um, so it's really cool that you volunteer to help. Um, Tina was, uh, I wouldn't say I'm exactly a, a, a patient or whatever of Tina's, uh, more of a friend, but however, when I had my last surgery, uh, Tina was nice enough to come and meet with my wife and kind of prepare her because I was preparing for the worst, right? In case I couldn't walk again or, you know, there's a lot of risks with, with spinal surgeries. Um, so uh, before we get into the plane crash, can we get into that a little bit? Like what, I mean, I, I know it's personal what you and Kristen talk about, but it seemed to really help her. Like I, like what, what is it exactly that you do um, with this, like to prepare the spouses for something like that? Well, in any capacity, um, it, when, it, when anyone is going through a critical incident or facing a critical incident, the most important thing that we can do is support their natural support network. I am no one special. I'm one of many trained people who also do the same thing. Um, and we're fortunate to be able to come in and support, but our job is to make ourselves not needed. Nice to be wanted, but mm -hmm. not needed. And your best support are the people that you identify that are closest to you. So most often that is your family network, your immediate friends, and potentially some coworkers. Um, it's how really how you find your support system. Right. I, I got paired with Kristen through your request, um, and I worked with other um, FDNY family members, some who lost on 9-11, some who were suffering from the medical ramifications, and some who have now been passed from those medical ramifications. And um, it was nice to meet your family. Uh, it's nice to see the family unit, so that's helpful. And it, it gives a layer of depth for the spousal support or support of parents or older children that you know more than just what the um, first responder is doing on their job. You know that the job isn't just them. They have family members. They have other obligations. They have other desires and love. Hockey for one of them. You know, and to find ways to bond with that in the family unit is very supportive. Right. Um, can, you, can you lean up a little bit? Wait, I'm losing oh, you a little bit. There you go. Sorry. Is that better? Yep, better. Is it the uh, voice that you're losing? I, no, I, like just, <laughs> I just want everybody to hear what you're saying. That's all. Oh, okay. Uh, I Sorry. I'll talk loud. <laughs> I know I'm that's true. I'm spoken, but I do talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other component, I don't know if I mentioned this, is the confidentiality. Um, it, our um, training, and support services have been upheld in law, in the court of law. Um, nothing that is shared with us from a family level or from a first responder or military um, personnel is, uh, can be divulged uh, even under court order. And um, we are bound to that confidentiality. I'm grateful that you and Kristen earlier have said that it's okay to speak about that. But if someone were to contact me or another CISM person, no one would ever even know unless they decided they wanted someone else to know. Yeah. And more often than not, that's how our support takes place is one person refers us to another person. 
Okay, that, that was gonna be my next question. Do you ever get like, uh, do the agencies themselves call you up to to oh, yeah. intervene? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's the primary method um, is that it'll be, there's a critical incident in a firehouse and they'll call out for support. And we go in, um, usually within 90 minutes, um, they'll respond. And it basically is a debriefing but, um, for people that understand that component. Um, it's a debriefing where you walk through who did what during the incident to try and fill in the gaps that might be missing for individuals. Um, for example, if you did something on a job and you don't understand how and why the other component wasn't done, it doesn't mean that it wasn't done. You're just not aware of it. Um, right. So filling in the gaps for each other is a huge help. And that can go from our dispatch right through to the actual guys on the on the job. And then even to family members afterwards. It depends on the, the incident. Okay, cool. And that's that's actually why I wanted to have you on is to help me fill in some gaps. Uh, I, I've, I've spoken about it a little bit on the show, but I haven't really delved into what I saw that day. Um, you know, everyone knows about 9-11. There's documentaries all year long now, but I feel like that that incident kind of gets lost in our history simply because of the timing, right? Had that happened at any other time, yeah. that that would have been, you know, a huge tragedy in New York. And now it just seems like a footnote to 9-11, really, which... It's still a huge tragedy. Right. Um, I don't know if people are aware, but it was a, a fully loaded jet airliner filled with fuel that essentially went straight down, nose first, into somebody's house um, in in Bell Harbor, Queens. Um so I'll just get I'll get into it uh, from my point of view, and then you could help me from there because um, that day changed me forever, uh, more so than nine eleven did. I think just because of the sheer volume of death um, and destruction that I witnessed. You know, at Ground Zero, you know I, I saw dead bodies and body parts. Um, and for anybody listening, uh, it's going to get graphic. So if you don't like to hear about blood and guts um you know maybe put on some music um so yeah that day i i remember we didn't get called right away um we so we were watching it on tv with everybody else uh we didn't know what was going on we thought maybe it was another attack which i i still can't say for sure if it wasn't you know i mean they had a report but you know who knows? Um, I can't really hear oh, you. I didn't say anything. Oh, okay. I, I didn't know if your mic cut out. I'm sorry. All right. No, no, no. I, I didn't know if your mic cut out again. Um, so we went later in the day, and I remember um, I was a probie, and I was freaking out like everybody else. Um, and I remember getting chewed out because my girlfriend at the time was in England. She was living there. And she called me from a payphone um, and I couldn't really hang up, but she was flipping out and, you know, somebody asked me to do something and I'm like, well, I, what am I supposed to do? I can't really hang up the phone right now when your girlfriend's flipping out, thinking that you're going to respond to a terrorist attack. And, you know, so whatever. So once I went and explained to the lieutenant 
why I couldn't hang up the phone. He, he understood, but he chewed me out for everybody. But uh, eventually we got sent there probably at like four o'clock, five o'clock. And for me, I wasn't, I was supposed to be off duty. By the time we left, uh, I, I believe the guy who was supposed to come in forgot uh, that he had a scheduled uh, overtime tour, uh, which happens, you know. Um, so I had to wait for him. So essentially we had to go before he got there. So that was my first, uh, that's, that, that's really my first memory of it. And second was I was supposed to meet my dad for dinner that night. Um, for you New Yorkers, we were supposed to meet at Lee's Tavern, which for my money is the best pizza in Staten Island and, and probably New York. But I had to call him on the way there and say, you know, I can't come. I'm going to this event. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen. I know I'm getting home. And that was it. And it was, you know, we hadn't really spoken for a while, me and my dad. So it was kind of like our first time we were supposed to, you know, go hang out. Um, so I didn't make it to dinner. Um, and I apologize for, for speaking so much in this interview, but this is the point. Um, my first memory of getting to the scene was the house next door. Uh, there was a head of a golden retriever with one paw still attached. Um, and as soon as I saw that, I realized that, you know, this, this isn't going to be good. You know, it was probably like a hundred feet from the crash site, but, and I love dogs. So that was pretty striking. Um, and then when we got there, it was a bit chaotic, but I think nine 11 eerily prepared all the guys for what was going on because everyone just kind of did what they had to do without really thinking about it, you know, cause we had just been doing it for two months. Um, but we got there right when they started pulling the bodies out. Um, and it's not so simple as just picking up a, a dead body and moving it because it was, the bodies were intertwined with each other with the parts of the plane all the wiring pieces of the house um they weren't coming out clean uh by any means um and you know we had to do some things that nobody would ever want to do to a, another person just to get them free you know just to get them loose um and, and i remember one striking moment for me was some chief yelling at me, Hey kid. And I, I looked up, I was like, what? He goes, watch where you're standing. And I looked down and somebody's intestines were wrapped around my foot. And I was like, you know, it was pretty startling to realize you were standing in somebody like, cause you couldn't tell what you were standing on. It was just kind of like a soup. Um, and then I remember a young, there was a young priest there and he made eye contact with me. Uh, cause I mean, I was 22. I must've looked like, you know, a kid, in his a kid in his father's fire gear, right? Um, I just remember he he just like gave me like this reassuring, you know, nod, but he didn't say anything. Um, I mean, we stayed there for hours uh, digging and pulling and cutting. And it was just a lot of, of death at one moment. Um, and the smell by that time, I guess it was like eight hours later, it already smelled like death. Uh, I remember sending out my gear to get cleaned by the fire department. Uh, and I had to send it out about three or four times to get the smell of 
dead bodies out of my gear. Um, and it was strange. And it was, a, and then I remember the ride back and, and one of the guys sitting across from me, I, I won't say his name, but he was working on nine 11. And I don't know if you know the story of engine two sixteen, but, uh, Danny, sir, who was the first official fireman, uh, to die on 9-11 was hit by a jumper. Um, and this guy was standing next to him when it happened. Um, and I could just see the look on his face and he was just shaking his head saying, you know, I, I, I didn't need this. You know, he didn't need that on top of everything he had already witnessed. Um, so that, like I said, though, for me, something inside of me just, I wouldn't say died, but I, I just, I lost a piece of, uh, I don't know, of who I was. You know, I remember my dad telling me that he would come home from work because at that time I lived with him and I would just be sitting, staring out the window, you know, which isn't me. That's not, I was a 22 year old kid, you know, I would spend my days off staring out the window at concrete in Staten Island, you know? <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I never really dealt with it. Um, I never really told detailed stories of what I saw there, uh, even to my family, you know, I, I certainly never told my kids this, you know, and I'm hoping that someday when they're old enough, they could watch this and find out why daddy stares out the window. But, um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know what, what I lost that day, but it was something. Um, and I'm sure you've witnessed other people go through or say similar things, but I'll let you talk now. And then I'll thank you for sharing that. It really was a pretty dramatic thing not so um, you shared a lot of And um, everybody processes things differently. There is no right or wrong way that we go about experiencing things. They happen and we react. And how we react matters. Um, you mentioned a couple of different things um, beforehand um, about your experience at 9-11, which you, know, um, you felt prepared you and the other guys. It, it was a continuation of what the trauma you were already going through. So that compounded extended trauma. Um, and that you and your dad hadn't connected um, at, at that particular point in time you were supposed to. Um, the piece you know, a piece that I hear you expressing that potentially was lost a part of you. Maybe it wasn't a part of you rather than the loss of the innocence of a 22-year-old's life. You know, you knew going into the fire department that you were going to be doing challenging things and you were prepared for that. But to have so much happen at such a young point in your career is um, profound. And your ability to share that is enormous. Anything that gets emotion out of the body is helpful. So in processing, you're talking and that gets something else. You're taking your um, processing a bit further by making these podcasts. And I've seen you in other venues. Um, you've been in each other for several years. And that you are trying to share so that it helps others in their healing process. And that um, is one of the stronger points of healing 
uh, is when you can bring in um, your story to share with others, and that's exactly what we're doing. Um, you know, I also heard you saying that you wanted to protect your girlfriend who's on the other side of the ocean uh, mm -hmm. at the beginning, and the rationale for being torn between being uh, um, a boyfriend, regular civilian boyfriend, and being a firefighter. And really, you're one person that has multiple facets. You're also a son that couldn't see his dad that day. Uh -huh. Going to the scene, um, the pieces that you just shared, um, I'm sure come up for you at different times. Um, and unexpectedly, and that is difficult when those come out of the blue, and how you process those, what you do with those um, matters. It, it, unfortunately, bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people, too. Mm -hmm. How we move forward with those experiences defines who we are. And every single human being on the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. For it. No one doesn't. Um, we're not isolated creatures. We're meant to be together. Uh, how do you um, how do you think you experience the immediate uh, aftermath of like the first time you saw your dad? Uh, I guess when I eventually got home, I, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe the next day, because I probably got home at like two or three in the morning. Um, so yeah, I don't remember, you know, seeing him after that, uh, you know, so I, I can't say for sure. Um, we didn't go for, we didn't go for pizza. <laughs> uh, but do you feel that you've connected with your dad since then? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Right. You know, move the relationship forward given what you've gone through. Yeah, maybe, you know, plus I, I had been away for, I don't know, seven years. You know, I, I went away to high school and then college and my mom died in the middle there. And so I, it was really a readjustment to moving back home, which, you know, it had been a while. And uh, adding in that, <laughs> you know, the, the first two months of my career, um, I think it was a lot for all of us, right? I mean, <laughs> it happened yeah. to the whole family. Right. Not oh, sure, yeah, because both all of us were were there. My, both my brothers uh, and my father were all at, you know, either at Ground Zero or Lower Manhattan. So we all experienced it in our own way. Um, Did they all respond in in um, Bell Harbor too? No, no, that was that was just me. Um, it's funny. I don't really know many people who did, I guess, because I worked on the other side of the city. So most of the companies were from Queens and I guess maybe the Bronx. Um, not really quite sure how we ended up there from Williamsburg, but, uh, right. I guess. Yep. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't think many of the other guys who were there ever really talk about it. You know, I remember last year on Twitter around the anniversary, I posted something and then I don't even know his real name. He just uses a Twitter handle. 
you know, sent me a few messages saying that a couple of guys, you know, he knows were there and the things they describe are way worse than he remembers from nine 11, you know, and I don't think they talk about it enough, uh, you know, either with each other or, you know, I, I, I highly doubt anybody talks about this with their families. Um, you know, what do you, why do you think that you don't talk to your family about it? Like, why do you not talk to your family about it? Well, I made that decision. I mean, even as a kid, when I d- decided to be a fireman, I, I made that decision. Like you mentioned the, the girlfriend I had on the phone, like that I was going to do this so other people didn't have to do it. Right. I was going to go see this bad shit so other people didn't have to see it um, because that's, you know, you know, that's what that's what firemen do. Right. Uh, so to a certain extent, like you have to be able to take that kind of stuff and absorb it and still function. Um, you know, that's part of the job, too, is 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 being able to push that stuff to the side to a certain extent. Otherwise, it'd be impossible to ever get back on the rig if you weren't able to do that. Right. Um, but I think sometimes you take that too far. And, and if you keep pushing enough stuff to the side, then. It gets you know. buried and it comes back later. The right. body always keeps the score. Nothing happens to us that does not impact our body. You mentioned smell, um, sound, even a taste in the air. Um, we, we experience, we, we have multiple senses. And so how we integrate those senses into our being going forward um, impacts us in how we grow and evolve as human beings. Um, most often, um, families, um, first responders, I don't know this, they don't share with their family because they need a safe place. And your family is who you love the most. Right. And you want to keep them pure and protected. They're who you're doing this for. Right. And you, you want that safety. And sometimes in the family support component, just to have somebody else explain, why is my husband not talking to me? Because he really can't, because you're his safe space for him to come home and just be. But I think that culturally, um, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, <laughs> culturally, uh, first responders, military, have that suck it up attitude that you mentioned. Uh, absorb it and move on. Um, and in some uh, regards, you, you have to in order to function on the job. Um, but the ability to sit down and talk about that at the kitchen table, where a lot of firehouse kitchens, where a lot of stuff takes place, certainly was very helpful for my father and for our family um, as we were growing up through different incidents that occurred uh, at times. So I know that firsthand. Um, and the ability now, I think it's much more prevalent in our culture. We're learning and opening up that getting support matters. And it's not a sign of weakness. Technically, it's a sign of right? And sometimes people just need to talk and have someone genuinely listen who understands or understands the premise under which you're sharing. Um, because I've certainly not gone through what you've gone through, but I can hear the words that you're saying and I'm listening to them. And um, to 
to be able to get that emotion out of the body is part of the processing that human beings go through. Some people talk, some people yell, some people run. Physical activity, anything that gets your heart beating for more than 20 minutes is a good way to process to process sleep. Um, is to do that every day, 20 minutes a day, is healthy for all people. Um, but particularly Absolutely. after a traumatic event, really within you know 24 hours is ideal. Is get your heart rate up um, outside of the actual event. <laughs> your heart's beating at the event. Right. Um, is another way. So dancing, boxing, writing, um, ice skating, playing hockey, anything that moves your body or gets the emotion out. Some people write music. Some people sing. You know, there are multiple venues in which to get emotion out. Um, but doing so is helpful. And you can do that on your own, but more often than not, it's having a compassionate presence. Yeah. There to listen and, and experience your sharing is what matters. Yeah, I, I actually I say that to Kristen all the time that that if I could just play a hockey game once a week, mm-hmm. that I would feel a million times better. You know, just to have that release and mm-hmm. hang out with the guys, you know, and actually play. Yeah. Uh, I know that's know. a big part of who you are. Yeah, and getting to know that those facets is part of the family support component. Um, because if I didn't know you at all, and this is the first time we were meeting which can happen in, um, a, in a CISM setting. Mm-hmm. Um, I might meet someone only once. I know nothing else about them. I know what they're experiencing at that moment. And we go through our process of sharing and we make a follow-up time to touch base. Um, however, they care to do that by phone, in person again, particularly in person helps, but obviously you and I are doing Zoom and that helps too, it's better than nothing. Right. Um, and uh, and then what, sometimes that's all they need. Or then, you know, three months down the road, six months, this is the follow-up. Hey, hi, how's it going? And sometimes that's all you need for certain incidents. And if you take those steps in sharing along the way, then it doesn't build up and compile. I recognize that you have a unique situation of extreme trauma on top of extreme trauma in the beginning of a career in addition to losing your mom. Um, but the ability to share pieces as they're happening allows our brain to move stuff from the forefront of our, our processing and actually file it away. And so it gets filed away not in a sealed up tight little box that nobody opens and doesn't talk about. It's actually moved into long-term memory. So then it doesn't impede our ability to function and move forward. It's functionality is how you do an assessment. And some people need counseling and some people need further um, further guidance. And we don't do counseling. Uh, we don't do therapy. Uh, we do critical incident stress management. So to be able to talk about something when someone is needs it and is ready to do so is important. But if they need more than that, we have multiple services that we refer to. There's we have residential services, um, we have hour long services, you know, there's right. components that keep these ones. 
Right. And, and there's, there is a distinct difference, right, between the initial trauma, like that type of counseling, as opposed to long-term therapy. Like it's, it's two totally different things, right? Two different so, but something you touched on before, I, I'm a hundred percent agree with is, is the physical release of the emotions. I think for me, that's when everything came to a head, which is probably right around when we first met was when I was physically unable to do anything. Um, that's when all the stuff that I had been pushing off to the side and stuffing in my locker started making their way out because I, I couldn't move. I couldn't get up and go do all the things, ride my bike, whatever it was that I did to keep my mind off of it. All I could do was sit and drink, uh, you know, and that's and, putting in, that's going into right. Your which only put, help. <laughs> right. Um, and I think that that accelerated my physical ailments also. I think that's, uh, you know, I, I think there's a huge connection between emotional health and your physical health. And I think, I mean, I know you see it and I think, and I think that's what, that's why we see the acceleration of cancers and all these other illnesses and firefighters, because they, they do have all that trauma built up. Um, and I think the, the emotional trauma only further, um, I, I know they've done studies on this. They do it at Mount Sinai with nine 11. And I know, I mean, I felt it myself. Like I know it's, it, there's gotta be something to it. Right. Uh, and well, the emotional component to the body through all of our senses, in addition to your chemical exposure and physical trauma combined um, can be, yeah, it, it, the body keeps the score. It, it really does. And you can't take away your exposure, your, your chemical exposure, your physical trauma on you has happened. But how you emotionally deal with that can impact your longer term health. Absolutely. Right. That's an interesting element. Uh, no pun intended <laughs> that I didn't think of was the <clears throat> the chemical trauma, you know, that we all faced, um, not just at 9-11, but at that plane crash, as you More and I so have discussed. Yeah. I mean, I would say so. I mean, we 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 were standing in jet fuel, you know, it, it, it's, uh, you know, 9-11, it was, it was one of many toxins in the air, 160 or whatever, but it was blown all over the lower Manhattan. This was all in one plot of land, <laughs> you know, those aren't very big uh, plots of land to begin with. So I, I think that's an interesting element. And I wonder how much that adds to, or changes our, our brain's functionality, right? Because you're adding different chemicals to your body, essentially. Absolutely. It definitely has an impact. Right. And, and then the mindset, because like you said, you, you had to respond. You had, you had to go to the job. So you, you had to be there standing in the fuel and, and all of the other chemicals that came out of the plane. It wasn't just fuel. Mm -hmm. um, and then you were dealing with um, the, the trauma of the patients that you were moving and the, the bodies that you're moving um, is additional um, exposure. And 
you even mentioned it took you four times to send out your gear before it was clean. Mm-hmm. And now we also know that the components in the gear are difficult. So that's exposure. That's not how you're dealing with the exposure. Right. Not change the exposure. Well, we're hoping we're going to change the c- components in the gear, but right now you can't con- you can't control that. But how you emotionally process and share about that, even just the ability right now, I saw it in your face to actually acknowledge that. Wow, hey, <laughs> that matters to be able to share that. Hey, I had this exposure as well. Right. Um, the chemical exposure and have somebody somebody else listen and acknowledge that you went through a terrible thing that was that was hard mm-hmm. it was hard for a human being to do that remarkable as a firefighter to have done that stuff and we're grateful definitely mm-hmm. well, thank you but interestingly enough i I don't know if you know this, but you're the first person who noticed uh, my shaking. Um, it was something that I had felt, but I didn't think anybody else could see it. I don't know why, like you're physically shaking. I remember we were at uh, Ray's funeral and uh, you came over and you, 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 I don't know, my hand was, something was, something was shaking and you, you started mentioning things like Parkinson's and like other things that I hadn't even thought of yet. And, uh, I don't know. I just thought it was perceptive of you too. Well, it's also uh, from experience. And my right. father died of Parkinson's. Right. He had exposure, um, fire exposure that a lot of the guys that were on that particular job, um, are now being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And mm-hmm. it was a component that I know personally. So to see it in others is sad, but it's also an acknowledgement of the family or fire family, right? right. Yeah. And, and caring for one another. And um, I think that's something we're going to see more of, unfortunately, is uh, those types of illnesses um, are going to start coming out, I think. Um, I haven't been diagnosed with Parkinson's, if you're listening. Um, the, it's just a neurological component. Yeah. It, of, something I knew right yeah I just have like a uh, a bunch of things (laughs) all happening at the same time so they can't really attribute it to any particular thing because of the neck injuries and whatever we don't have to get to that but uh, I just don't want people to think that they have Parkinson's Um, but there are a lot of guys out there who do Um, ALS also um, we're starting to see more of uh, in the 9-11 community, um, which I think is related to the chemicals that you were mentioning, um, which is also why I think it's important that people talk about this stuff. Like you said, get it out of your body because it's all in there. And if, if, if talking about it a little bit puts off those illnesses or, or, or stops or slows them down, then, then why not? Right. I mean, or just helps to put your, your mind, your being in a different frame to to deal with what's going on in your body from exposure right you know you mentioned uh, in your sharing uh, of making eye contact with the young priest uh, that was at, at the scene 
and potentially that eye contact did more for you than you might know. You know, and it it's nice for you that that it came from a priest, mm -hmm. uh, from a faith point of view. Um, but it could have been any other human being. You know, even the chief that looked at you and, and gave it a, a point. Look where you're standing. You know, be careful where you're standing. Right. And to have another eye contact, it's human contact that we need. And when when military first responders try to separate that, oh, I'm a firefighter and I'm a dad and I'm a husband and I'm a son. You know, you're all of those things together. And how do we support all of that together? Right. That's actually something I mentioned last week. Was that's the difference between you know service members and firefighters is the time isn't isn't separated. It's you can go from sorting dead bodies to putting your baby to sleep in 45 minutes. Uh, you know, you're not off at war. I think, I mean, it's two totally separate things. I mean, you know, I'm not saying. First responders have a lot more immediacy with their natural life. Right. There are components of the military that do have that as well. I've worked with drone pilots. Right, um, yeah who have gone from, they're in a bunker here and they're dropping bombs over there. Sure. And watching it and then they're home for dinner and and there's zero processing for that. Yeah. Which is the same that you guys go through, except their bodies aren't there. But right. they have eyes, they have ears, they know what's happening. So their exposure still matters. Right. You additionally have physical exposure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I didn't think about. It. I, I, mean, I guess certain extent, fighter pilots also like that. That's how it started. They used to do stuff like that. I don't know if they still do. Right, but, but uh, they were separated. Right, you know, right. they were on deployment. Yeah. Now with our technology. Yeah. The technology is advanced, so yay, we don't put a person in danger, but they're still having trauma. It still affects them. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And to say that, oh, now there's there's no risk. That's false. There is still risk. Absolutely. Right. And, you know, I, I also talk about this a lot was. Was Ray's attitude in dealing with his exposure to all the trauma and the emotional trauma and his own illnesses. Um, he always talks about having cancer. Right. Anybody who told you, how you doing? I got cancer. You know, <laughs> you laugh in your face. But I think that's why he lasted so long. Right. I mean, I, I I'm no professional, but the smiling and the and the talking about it and the, the, the wisecracks, I think are what kept him going. You know, and I and I think, he also was helping others to right. acknowledge that, yes, I am sick. Yes, I may have cancer. Yes, I should go get that looked at. So. He was also serving a mission. Yeah. Yeah, I knew Ray for quite a few years before meeting you, but that Ray is how, well, actually, Ray is the one that invited me to go to the, putting the names on the wall um, when you guys did that with the, the Field Good Foundation, um, putting the names on the wall where you and I met. Um, but it was through Ray that I was invited to be there. Yeah, I, 
it seems like a lot of people say that it, it we met through Ray. Like, yeah, that's, that's, well, I guess well, his, one of his good lines was I got a guy. Yeah. And right. But I'm a girl. It <laughs> doesn't matter. Right. You're still his guy when it comes to, uh, right. CISM. Um, that's great. Yeah. He, I, I think that is, uh, more so his legacy than anything was his ability to keep helping people. Um, even though he was the one who really needed the help and which I think helped him. I don't know. That sounds like a bad haiku, but it's no, <laughs> true. There's, um, have you heard of the Spartan pledge with the firefighter act? No. So, um, just on veterans day, I was with, um, the cadets from, the FDNY from the fire Academy who were all military who came up and um, they took the pledge um, right with the engine three forty three, Um, and it's, um, the sword, the Spartan sword was made with the remnants of the, um, world trade center steel site after all the components were out and they swept it all up. And there's a little fragments and a little bit of dust and they sent it out and, uh, it was hand forged into a Spartan sword, and there's a pledge that you take about uh, not taking your own life, and to have your uh, you check in with your battle buddy, and to have a mission, find a mission to help your warfighter family. And it was um, initiated. I, I took the inaugural pledge down in Washington D.C. when it was first rolled out, and uh, it was for military, active duty, and veterans, and um, now they've since made um, a Spartan Act, which is for the fire department, and they bring that to, because you basically you wear two different uniforms, but you do the same thing. You're you're our front line in protecting people, mm-hmm. and um, that the component in that pledge of you know to have a mission. Your mission is to find a mission to help people. And that Ray was excellent at doing that. And now, Rob, you're doing it with your podcast. You're doing, you have a mission. You're doing it. And those that listen, I, I've listened to all of your podcasts and you bring in stories and components that aren't, people are able to listen to that they may not have had exposure to any other way. And that may be helping them or it's helping them to talk to other people. Is a good thing. Yeah, I hope so. And, and I, you know, I, I don't know exactly. I mean, my main reason for wanting to do this is so that my kids will have something to look back on and and get me to get hear these stories from my mouth. Uh, you know, because I don't know if I could ever say so, some of these things to their faces. I don't, you know. It's, um, but I do hope that it, at least you know, kind of humanizes, you know, what it is that we go through. And and, uh, uh, that's why I love having the guys on to tell their stories because, you know, you might see a car accident and be pissed off because you're stuck in traffic and you got to wait for the tow truck or whatever. But then you hear Joe McKay talking about pulling a two and a half year old boy from underneath a car. And you realize, you know, that somebody's life has really changed. You're not just late for work, you know? I, I always say when things like that happen, I say, apparently my guardian angel knows more than I do, and I'm not supposed to be moving right now. So this traffic jam is to help keep me safe. 
Right. So maybe just put on some music and, and right. not be so pissed off. Right. Um, or maybe put on a, a, a podcast about firefighting and listen to that. She's a component with um, family support, with um, being able to just text Kristen and check in, check it in, just check it in, saying hi. And sometimes she's just like, yeah, hey, we're doing all right. And that's good. And then other times out of the blue, it's, do you have a second? And I always have a second. Always. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't, one of the big components that we have too is knowing how many people we're actually interacting with. Um, and you can interact right. and that's fine. But for a longer term component, you can't have a hundred people you're taking care of. That's impossible. Right. Um, but if someone texts me and I, I know I've told this to you and I know I've told it to Kristen, you text me, I'll respond within 90 minutes. But if you call me 24 seven, I'm answering that phone. So there's that that extra level of safety of, right? right. I, I, I don't even need to call, but I know that there's someone that will listen to me at any time. Well, I think I said that to you last week. Uh, you, you were asking me how I was doing and I was answering you honestly. And because I knew that you were genuinely asking, you wanted the real answers. And I think that's a, I don't know if we lost our empathy, but I think that's a big issue and I think I told you this, like I started an experiment when people asked me how I was doing, I started giving them the honest answer. And 99% of the time they instantly changed the subject or, you know, it was clear. It was just a rhetorical, how you doing? Um, nobody really wants to hear it. Um, so anyway, but I, I always know when you're asking, uh, which is why you usually get a long answer because nobody else really cares. So. No, that's not true. Not <laughs> you know what I mean. They may not be able to cope with the answer. Right. You know? They don't have training. A training in how to listen. Right. You know, and that matters. Um, I've also had personal exposure to different things and experiences um, in first responder communities. And that matters. You know, our experience helps us to build us moving forward. And so they ask, and then don't really want to know. Right. <laughs> you know, but then others are able to ask a pointed question and you know, yeah, I, I can answer this one because this is a trusted person that I can share with and know what I'm saying is going to be respected, listened to. And if I had a magic wand, you know I'd pull it. <laughs> right. But I, I think even untrained people can can I mean, empathy doesn't mean you actually have to have experienced the same exact thing to know that. No, absolutely not. Right. I've not experienced any of what you've experienced, thank God. But I have empathy to listen. Right. And you have, you've dealt with, uh, you know, I know yeah. some of your story. You've dealt with a lot yourself. And you, that you draw on that to right, support other people. Right. Um, I definitely think we need more of that uh, just from everybody, not just... The human race needs one of it. Right. Like you, well, you know, I think culturally, in our area, culturally, we put on the bravado. And I think that that is now shifting. Um, and we're certainly making huge strides with that um, uh, at a level in D.C., with the VA, um, in getting support for our military. Um, 
and we're doing that with um, groups like ours, with like the ISM, with our local fire departments, our local police departments. You know, it doesn't have to be a 9-11 issue or, or a plane crash in Bell Harbor to need support. I mean, it could be yeah, just like the one car car accident, you know, that he was sharing the other day. Yeah. And that, you know, that is sad. And that's a rough situation. That's a critical incident, you know. And sometimes you go through things and it doesn't bother you. And that's what bothers you. Hey, that, yes. I did that and... I'm okay. Well, I'm going to go get a ham sandwich. Like, I'm all right. And then you stop and say, I can't believe that I just went through that and, it, and I feel nothing. I'm, I'm not feeling anything. That, that is funny you mentioned that because a few weeks after the plane crash, we had a, a run um, and it was me and, and the lieutenant. Was, a few of us were the same people who were working. And it was a guy jumped off the roof completely naked and smashed his head off of an old radiator that was, it was a mess. And it didn't even phase us. We were just like, oh, all right, you know, clean up an aisle six or whatever. We made some jokes and and then later on, I'm like, that should have probably affected me a little bit more than it did, but it was just like, we grew numb to it, you know? Right, it was just. But you did did utilize um, a great technique, which is humor. And yeah. you know, you know, in our world here, we have a pretty thick sense of humor. Yeah. Um, but you did use a method of coping, which was humor, and um, that you got it out of, you talked it out, you mentioned it. You know. And yeah. You, you might not even see that you did it, but you did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't think there's lack of humor in a firehouse. I don't think that is. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely not our problem yeah, sarcasm yeah all the way right uh but but something you said earlier and i think something that helped me was was that priest uh was the people who weren't firemen you know uh i think it's especially in the moment it's hard for us to to really help each other um you know go through that but and I, I probably should have mentioned this, but right before I, the priest looked at me, I had handled a baby's head, uh, just the head. And it was like, you know, all I could do to just keep moving, you know, not, you know, I don't know what I would have done to walk away, you know, like, you, and just having that reassuring moment with that priest helped me. And then, Another thing I should mention is when we left, when we walked back to the rig, every single house had tables set up in front. Um, they were giving us food, uh, offering us drinks. Um, I was on probation. Um, you know, anything, hugs, thank yous. Um, and I, I think that helped a lot, you know, and I think that's, that's, part of the empathy that I'm talking about. And if it wasn't for that, and same thing at ground zero, you know, the lines of people cheering and applauding and, you know, that, that stuff goes a long way. It, it shows that you're not doing it, you know, for nothing, or at least, you know, that those are the people that I was saying you're doing it so they don't have to. And at least when they show you that support or when they text you, how you're feeling and they really want to read the response. Um, I think that's very helpful. I don't know. Yeah. 
It does. It takes a village. You know, that's a cliche little comment, but it does take a village to live. We're not isolated. We're not um, in, individual entities that we're, we're meant to be in community. Human beings are meant to work to be in a community. Right. And, and I, I think we all do, we, I mean, another cliche, but we all do better when, when we all do better, right? If we all, you know, you know if, if we just, I don't know, it's, it's a, it's a tough, uh, I feel like it's getting harder and harder uh, or people are caring less and less about each other. I don't know if it's the internet and the disconnect from human, you know, like, physical component of people of actually being in the same room as people you know i I think that you lose it becomes like a video game like you stop caring because it's not doesn't it's not really real i feel like i don't know a lot there are a lot of studies going on about that too i'm sure um we need touch human beings need touch and um you know just like the putting a hand on the shoulder somebody you know right. a pat on the back or uh you know holding someone's face when you're really looking at them mm-hmm. and things matter um, because it's another component of showing that empathy right you know? or in today's world it's just putting your phone away or out of your sight you know i say that all the time you if you're sitting there with your phone like here's my phone if it's sitting in front of me while we're having a conversation it's part of the conversation right it's it's part of your mind isn't completely committed to the person you're talking to. If that's why, I, if I'm talking to someone, I try to put my phone away so they see that yeah. I'm listening to them. I'm not, it's, it's a level of uh, of respect to the person that you're interacting. With. Right. Plus, if someone like me who has trouble focusing as it is, I don't need any other distractions anyway. So, <laughs> you know. But so, if you're listening and you and you're talking to somebody. Uh, put your phone out of the line of sight, at least, you know, I think that, that, I think that helps. That's the same to me as touching somebody on the shoulder is, is at least giving them your time, you know? Undivided. Right. So, well, thank you for giving me your time. Um, You know, you've been a big help. And I have to tell you, my kids still talk about uh, going to your Vermont house um so thank you that was a big help at the time too it really helped us uh pull our shit together and, and at least give our kids a little bit of fun um right in so, that horrible summer so for others for others that don't know what you're referring to um we have a cabin in vermont that we use for respite for um our first responder or military um, family um and many uh had the opportunity to go up there and you're right when you're dealing with something overwhelming the last thing that is on your list of things to do is let's plan a family getaway yeah so just have a place to go that doesn't cost a dime and you can do nothing or you can make it into an adventure however you need or want and i know that your crew did do that in different ways um and just to give them another place be um, is very helpful and I've had a lot of um, I've, I've had a lot of positive feedback from those that have had the opportunity to go up 
Thank you, Tina. And I'm very sorry that we got cut off there, but I agree with you completely about the comforting and, and healing nature of the mountains. You know, I consider myself lucky that when my mom passed away that I was up in Lake Placid uh, in the Adirondacks and I, I took comfort there and, and it really helped me. And I'm grateful that you provided that for me and my family again uh, when we needed it and that you continue to provide that for other families that need it. Um, I think that's pretty cool. And I think that highlights, you know, one of the themes of this show, uh, which is not only volunteerism, but charity, you know, charity beyond the donating the extra dollar uh, at the checkout line at the supermarket. You know, um, if you know me, I'm, you know, I'm a volunteer board member of the Ray Pfeiffer Foundation, uh, which is a 9-11 first responder charity that provides medical needs um, not covered by insurance, you know, which can get pretty hefty. So I, you know, I hope that, that, you know, you see people like Tina and, and, it, and it encourages you to go out and maybe help somebody else. You know, not everybody has a, a house in Vermont that they can loan to people, right? But we all have a kind word that we can share with somebody else or any sort of encouragement or any sort of help, you know, the little things. Um, you know, I think they go a long way too. Um, you know, doesn't necessarily have to be a mountain uh, to help people, right? It can be the, the smallest little step. So, you know, I appreciate that. Um, I know that this interview uh, was a bit heavy, you know, it, it was for me. Um, it definitely kicked up some dust for me uh, that I'm still dealing with. But, uh, you know, I'm glad I spoke about it. Um, you know, I was a bit reluctant in the beginning and I wasn't even sure that I wanted to release the interview, um, quite honestly. But, you know, it's important. You know, I, 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 I hope that I was as honest as I can be. And I hope that it helps somebody in some way out there. But anyway, it's my truth, right? So there's no point in not sharing it. And that's how I feel. Hey guys, it's Frankie, and welcome back to another episode of Frankie's Firehouse Feast. Today's recipe is called Tina's Oatmeal M&M Cookies, and it's always a hit because M&Ms make friends. For today's recipe, you will need half a cup of butter softened, three-fourths of a cup firmly packed brown sugar, half a cup of granulated sugar, two eggs, one teaspoon of vanilla, one teaspoon of baking soda, one teaspoon of cinnamon, and one and a half cups of flour. Also, you will need three cups of old-fashioned oats. Mix them all together, then drop the rounded spoonfuls onto the baking sheet. Press the M&Ms on top. Bake at 350 degrees for 8 to 10 minutes. Cool for one minute on the cookie sheet. Then remove it to the wire rack. Cool completely. Eat and enjoy the sweet smile, my friends. Being that it's Thanksgiving, I think, you know, these types of memories also make me realize that I have a lot to be thankful for. I'm thankful for Frankie 
and her brother and sister uh, for always bringing me the smiles. And I'm thankful for the rest of my family. Um, I, I probably say the same thing every Thanksgiving, but really what more important is there to be thankful for than your family, right? I'm thankful to Rocky Boots and Righteous Media uh, for their support in this endeavor. Um, but most importantly, I'm thankful to you listeners for actually listening. Um, as I've said before, there's nothing more valuable in this world than your time. Uh, so I'm really thankful that you all decide to spend a little bit of time with me and Frankie. Um, so thank you. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. If you haven't already, subscribe now at thefirefighters.us, powered by Righteous Media. You can join the squad at patreon.com slash thefirefighterspodcast. But most importantly, stay low, my friends. Powered by Righteous Media.